I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with the vice president of North American Sales for Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxum, and the CEO and founder of Intel Store, Phil Tataro. And we are here to discuss offshore wind development in the United States because we get a lot of questions about that via LinkedIn, via chat, <laughs> via uh, text messages. Uh, that there's, there's a lot of concern about where the U.S. is going it, because there appears to be delays. And uh, you know, as the offshore wind is rapidly a growing industry and the U.S. has a potential to be a major player in it, but there are several supply constraints that are going to be holding back development. That includes a shortage of vessels and ports, the lack of a domestic manufacturing chain for the turbines, foundations, and ships, uh, a shortage of skilled workers, and also, you know, there's just regulatory issues, transmission lines, all of that. These constraints are, are, are a major challenge to the U.S. goals of developing 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. Uh, so to meet this goal, the U.S. will need to invest in all kinds of efforts uh, to even get close to the 30 gigawatt number. So this discussion today is to try to highlight some of the issues and, and, and make our listeners aware of what's happening out there because large players on the U.S. East Coast are starting to try to delay projects or asking for different PPA prices or trying to roughly trying to raise prices about 20%. Why are they trying to do that? So, Phil, hey, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. So there is a, a supply constraint. And and we're, we're Joel and I have gone back and forth about how big that constraint is. Are we 29 gigawatts out of 30 or are we more like 15 gigawatts out of 30? by 2030? Uh, we're leaning more towards the 15, um, if that. And unfortunately, the one answer to your question about why, you know, and, and why are people trying to slow down? Why are people trying to raise prices by 20%? The short answer is inflation. Um, the bigger question, though, is it, it looks like we're not actually quite ready to pull the trigger on some of the investment commitments that have been made. You know, there are nacelle factories that need to be built. There are blade factories that need to be built, uh, foundations, etc. Um, and while there have been many public statements about it, uh, which have excited and delighted, you know, local politicians who are interested in jobs and tax revenue, it we haven't actually seen money, a whole lot of money get spent yet. Um, I think of the 10 to 15 um, factory commitments or expansions, uh, let's uh, throwing in, you know, some some other domestic facilities. Um, there's about 15 or so facilities today that are uh, going to be built or expanded um, to support offshore wind. Of those, I think there's only been firm commitment and spending on about three or four of them, I want to say. Um, and so we're talking about, you know, 20 to 30 million or sorry, 20 to 30 billion dollars in the supply chain that's going to need to be spent on spooling up all of these capabilities. Many, many more factories than just those 10 to 15 that I've talked about. Um, uh, but we're not seeing the investment yet. You're seeing out of this, you know, thirty billion worth of investment, you're seeing maybe one billion of it get spent at this point. Um, so that's that's a big challenge as well. And you're and you're just talking hardware. You're right, Joel. Yeah. Right, Phil. I mean, that's just hardware. That's just that's just manufacturing. That's just building parts. That doesn't count any of the uh, building parts, ships, ports, all these things that are their infrastructure need. 
But that doesn't count training the staff to go and work at those factories, work at those ports, handle this equipment, maintain these turbines. You know, that doesn't even that's we're not even scratching that part of the surface. You know, that part of what the IRA bill is doing for the United States is it's providing investors an incentive by saying, okay, we're we're giving you certainty about this production tax credit for a period of time. Um, there are also manufacturing tax credits and, and other things that are tied into that package that make it attractive for domestic content. But if people are, you know, getting nervous about inflation, and, and thankfully that's damping down a little bit. I mean, we're still, you know, overinflated from where we were, let's say, two years ago or even three years ago. Um, but we're we're at a point where there's still, you know, project developers that are losing partners um, or developers that are just trying to wholesale pull out of projects or try to renegotiate them. Um, that's happened in, what, at least three states now. Let's talk about the way this should work and when a, a GE or a Siemens Gamesa is going to turn on a factory and start spending the money. When do they get triggered? Where does this all begin? Does it begin with a developer that's a locked-in PPA price, because that doesn't seem to be a good trigger right now because they're all renegotiating that. How does it? How does this flow start? When we looked at the New York Byte auction and all these different auctions, you see these wild amounts of money being thrown around. That money doesn't mean that they have a permit to put things in the water, that they have a PPA, that they're ready to go. All that money means is whoever wins that auction has the right to possibly develop that in the future. Right. That doesn't mean that they're lock, stock, barrel. We want it. Now we can go ahead. That just means that they've got the rights. That's why it was so crazy to watch that. Those like the New York bite specifically auction go to such high prices because there's nothing concrete about that, about those auctions. The winning that auction just means you have the capability of sometime in the future, maybe putting some wind turbines in. So that's the first part. Right. Then it goes to all the planning and securing PPAs and financing and turbines and all this all this good jazz exactly joel and so to also address alan's questions the the oems aren't going to spend money on factories until they have firm order book they don't get firm order book until after ppas are are well established and um more likely than not there's an informal um, you know, acknowledgement that they can reach uh, what's called FID or the final investment decision on the project. So in addition to the lease payments that they have to pay the government for those rights, the developers got to be able to go raise the capital necessary to actually build the project and operate it. So if they are finding it hard to, because of cost of money is going up again, because of inflation, etc. Um, if they're finding it hard to be able to do that, uh, that's going to de necessarily delay uh, building these projects. Is it a financing play at the min minute with the FID? The the FID is obviously that that sort of linchpin to the whole project. But what are the variables going into the FID at the moment? Well, right, that's a great question because it's you know if you're asking what's at the beginning of that chain, you know you you have to start with. Uh, you know, your site identification and, you know, geotechnical surveys, um, you know, bathymetric studies, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of development process that goes into that. Um, and, you know, thankfully, at least for the majority of the, uh, the near term 
or what should have been near-term East Coast sites, much of that was done. You're having the problem right now in New Jersey with the whale thing, um, and that's slowing down the ability to complete some of the geotechnical and bathymetric studies, um, sadly. Uh, so that's that's one aspect of it, but that's not what's ultimately derailing things. It it goes back to the inflation question and whether or not um, you know individual developers uh, are financially solvent enough to be able to you know build and operate these these projects. Um, one reason why you know Orsted, for instance, wanted to partner with PSEG on the Ocean Wind project was, or at least originally, was because PSEG brought certain capabilities, including capital, to to bear. You know they were going to own you know twenty five percent or more of that project, um, and to have somebody that was contributing that capital pull out. Um, it provides less certainty for the power offtake, and it provides less, you know, which is reflective of the fact that they're now being sued uh, and trying to counter sue in, in New Jersey to, to straighten all that power offtake out. Um, but you also lost, you know, your, your capital provider um, or a partner in, in the capital. Does it come down to financial instruments? Is that what it is that if if I'm a a large developer and I'm I'm losing partners that would help supply the cash for these projects, and they seem to be lo losing them pretty quickly here, to now you're getting down to four or five real key players. Is the financial stability of those companies enough on their own to raise the capital, or or are they going to go out and have to uh, sell assets? Or are they going to have to try to knock on doors of big lenders, black rocks of the world to do with these projects? It's got to be more granular than that, right? It's not necessarily, yeah, like you can look at Orsted and say, does Orsted have the capital to do this? Orsted can find the capital probably to do it, but it's the individual project, right? Does that, is that project efficient? Does it have, the, the big thing from, from my seat right now is, do we have a PPA? And are these PPA prices enough to support the 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 you know the, the capex at the beginning you know amortized over time and then the O and M costs over the life of the project? Will that PPA stand? And if it doesn't, then I'm out as a banker. Well, I don't, Joel, I don't know if it's just Orsted by themselves, right? So uh, Orsted as a company, true, but how many projects projects have to go bad or sideways where Orsted becomes financially in trouble. It isn't because they have so many projects going on simultaneously, they're really leveraged that way. It doesn't take but a couple. Well, that's why Vineyard Wind and all these other they're Vineyard Wind LLC and Sunrise Wind LLC. It's you know, it's not 100%. There's there's instruments there too. So if the uh, developers are having questions on making the financial decision to turn a project on or off, then back down the supply chain, here we go. We're, we in America are having an issue of getting into these blade factories, nacelle factories, towers built. What happens? And, and what, what, what does this look like? Because we don't build them today or next in 2024, does that just cascade into a bigger problem as we go along? I mean, unless, unless, I mean, if we're shooting for local content, that's one thing, right? But if, unless other factories want to pick up, like a lot of these blades for, I believe it's Vineyard Wind One are being built in Gaspé. They're being built in Quebec right now. And, and that's actually a pretty good setup because there's not a long steam to come down here um, in general for the project, right? Of course, we would rather see local content building these, these blades, but 
the demand, it's not like they're saying, hey, we need to put 5,000 of these out right now, so we need three blades making, or three factories making blades. Right now, I think they've got enough to push the blades out um, for the, the minimal amount of projects we're running to date. But if we have another auction go on in the Gulf and another auction going on in different places on the East Coast, another auction going on a little bit deeper water or, or California or all these other things to get to that 30 gigawatts, that one factory in Gaspé isn't going to make it happen. So, Phil, how far off are we? Are, are we uh, 20% behind, 30% behind, 50% behind on some of these factories quantity-wise? Yes, it's a it's a great question, but a complicated one because again, it depends on what the target is. If you're saying thirty gigawatts by twenty thirty, there's I don't think there's any way we make it with or without factories and and domestic content, etc. Um, we're just too we're too late to the game now to be able to build that fast because the the operative thing there is can you stand up a factory in uh, you know, 18 to 24 months from, you know, your, your decision to invest in, in that factory. Yes, you can. Um, but are we going to be sufficiently supplied with vessels capable of doing these large turbine installations? And the reality is that those vessels are not going to get built in enough time to get us to that 2030 target. Um, we are, if again, if 20, uh, 30 gigawatts by 2030 is the target, we're probably about between 40 to 50% behind where we need to be. Um, there are obviously some domestic vessels being fabricated uh, right now, but not enough to, to hit that measure. So again, going back to your comment, if it, we're talking about 15 gigawatts by 2030, which is maybe more likely, um, if we even get to that level, to be honest, um, we're probably about 80 to 85% of where we need to be, but we, well, assuming that the nacelle and, and blade factories and, and tower and foundation factories that people have committed to actually go forward relatively quickly, that being before the end of the year. Um, so we, we can, again, that's, that's what makes this kind of a complicated scenario is, you know, it's how much investment do you want to unlock and how quickly um there's a saturation point at which you know no matter how much investment you throw at it you're only going to be able to move so fast we're already i'm fairly convinced not going to meet that 30 gigawatt by 2030 um but we could you know if we threw all the investment we could behind things um you know you could probably get up to you know 20 to 25 ish um, you know, but we're still in, even in that scenario, you're still 60% below, um, you know, the, the vessels, the, uh, foundation fabrication and the other component fabrication capabilities where we need to be. So it's just how fast do you want to go? Uh, that that's always the question investors have and, and policy coupled with the, you know, well, or inclusive of monetary policy kind of goes hand in hand with that. Bill has raised a good point here. I mean, he's really talking about domestic manufacturing to sort of fill the void. I don't sure, not sure that offshore content makes it much difference here because the offshore demand, the European demand and other parts of the world are going to be so high that uh, LM Blade Factory in Gaspé has nothing to worry about. They're going to be booked out forever and that they're going to have to build factories. Yeah. And it's just a matter of where do you build them? 
make a choice because they're going to have to go somewhere if, if, with all these plans, right? So, I mean, when we talk 30 gigawatts, now remember, it's it's 20. I mean, when we when the conversation started on 30 gigawatts, in my head, it's one of these things like, oh, it's not too far off from the year 2000, right? That's my head. Like, when the conversation started about 30 gigawatts, this was 20. This was like two, 2020, right? We're only we're already halfway through 2023, so there's only six and a half years left before 2030, and we're at right now what like 42 megawatts in the water. <laughs> That's not a good sign. I think today we got another tur- we got another tower installed. Right. So that's I mean, that's that's positive. But I mean, maybe, Phil, you know, this number off the top of your head. I know I don't. Um, But how many gigawatts of possible space have we actually leased to date? I know the California leases were space for about four and a half gigawatts. What are we at on the East Coast? Combined with the the East Coast tenders and California, everything all in that Boehm's actually done. We're at. sized up to i think something like 28 and a half gigawatts um which is good of possibility that's been basically the lease rights are are out there for the lease rights are in place but as you just mentioned before it whether it gets built or not is still up for for conversation i suppose um and as we've talked about in the past even california is probably going to take until 2032 at the earliest to be able to build anything because they don't have transmission um, that they are even contemplating putting in place yet. <laughs> so that's a problem. And we know how things work in California at a snail's pace. So then, then what are the options here? Because it, it feels like we there needs to be a financial instrument provided by either state or federal government uh, to kick these projects into gear. That's, that seems like the only option right now because of the inflationary pressures. Banks are not willing to lend. There's a lot of oversight at the moment on banks. Um, getting outside investment from other countries is not going to go that well, I don't think, at the moment. Where else are you going to go to to find a financial instrument to begin these projects? I mean, we do we do see regularly like DOE backed loans go out, but they're smaller, right? Some of the yeah, I mean, some of them for transmission lines and things like that. Let's talk DOE just for a brief second here. It does seem like the DOE is spending money in a lot of different places. But they have to focus that. There's only so much money in the world, or at least you would think that there would be. That sometimes a DOE doesn't act like it. But they're just spreading cash everywhere for all kinds of projects. And I'm saying that's wrong. But if you're going to have one big goal, you got to spend a significant portion of that funding on that goal. And it doesn't seem like they are. It seems like they're more distributing money in a political sense than it is a accomplishing a, a task sense. Yeah, and, and to be honest with you, I'm wondering how much this will play or the, how much this is going to play into the next election cycle. I don't think it'll make a difference. You might see some some changes in policies and spending as it as it comes close to that as well. It might be something that's talked about and where's the money being spent and, and the IRA bill and, and those kind of things. I think we already see a decrease in the number of times they're saying 30 by 30. I, I, I watch DOE and kind of see what they're putting out. There has been a quiet shift away from that. And I, I think they're getting some real numbers to look at, probably from Phil and others, that, that says, we're not going to make it, so let's not hold this out as an accomplishment, because it's not going to be an accomplishment. It's going to be something where they just do poorly at from the outside. It's their goal. It's not anybody else's goal. Uh, but I'm, I, my thought was that they would try to realign, right? That there be a realignment sometime this summer or this fall on getting these projects 
out of this murk, this murky area that they're in at the moment. Uh, maybe, maybe instead of thirty billion going to Ukraine, we should save two of that and finish these wind farms. I'm not sure Congress would do it. See, this this is where I get back to Phil on the financial side, on on the commercial side. I think if it's going to happen, it has to be done commercially. What do the what do the developers do to get these PPAs locked in place to to move on? Do they just have to go to the governors of the states and just say, open the books, kind of like what they're doing in New York and asking for another 20, 25, 30% in PPA prices so they can move on. Yeah, it's it's altogether fair for the independent power producers to ask for an accommodation when inflation hits. But the the real question is it's kind of twofold. One is does this really necessitate a wider conversation around monetary policy to say why is the Federal Reserve still going so slowly with you know hikes um you know, is there something they could do that would damp down inflation faster? Um, that that would necessarily get people back to the table. Um, what would also bring people back to the table was not only what Joel mentioned, a willingness on the government's part to potentially issue, um, you know, green bonds, quote unquote, um, but also on, on behalf of some of these corporations. Now, companies like Iberdrola um, in Spain or Orsted in Denmark have necessarily gone the route of, you know, issuing green bonds uh, to a reasonable degree of success in those countries um, for projects that are, you know, theoretically European or um, maybe elsewhere. They, they've, I know, Orsted's transferred some of that money to Taiwan, for instance, for, for some of their offshore projects. Um, but they haven't levered themselves the way that they could here. Um, and I wonder if that's a commitment um, that government, state governments would necessarily mandate is to say, look, you know, you guys are going to have to demonstrate that you're going to be able to come up with more cash um, either through, you know, that type of a capital raise or by finding another, you know, investment partner. Um, and those the kind of large-scale investment partners that they want are tying their money up in oil and gas right now because they're seeing higher returns at this point. So as long as that's the case and they don't see the the value for money, you know, if you can't raise the PPA prices and, you know, the developers complain that the that the projects are unviable, which, I mean, I only believe that up to a little bit of a point. I think this is, yes, obviously inflation's biting, and you need to be able to accommodate it, but there's plenty of margin these days for, especially offshore independent power producers. They they could they could do with a little a little bit less, you know, one percent, two percent less. Um, so there there are things that could be done. The projects that in the United States are are part of a larger portfolio of projects that they can compete in, right? And if the U.S. projects are not that. Uh, it, profitable, let's get down to what it is, profitable, they have other choices where they spend their money. And I think that's what's happening at the moment. The, the Orsteds of the world are saying, well, I can make more money in Europe. Why am I messing around in the States and getting locked into something that I know is not a real winner where I can make another point, two points, three points over in Europe? I'm I'm out. And does, is, is that what's happening right now? Or is that the US, essentially the U.S. is competing against Europe and it, it definitely is competing against China? Does that then go back to the point of 
you need some sort of state instrument, federal instrument to get these projects going. That's one mechanism. Yes, is the short answer. That's one mechanism that could be utilized. At some point in time, you got to do something to tip the scales, right? Because of the, if you're the one sitting there with the capital allocation in your hand and you're just looking around like, where do I go? Well, if I can if I can take a loan out at 6% or a loan out at 3%, then, or, then I'm going to go elsewhere when you're talking billions of dollars. So the, the supply chain on the East Coast right now that's going to be creating these offshore wind turbines in theory at some point, where's that all focused at right now? Because from the outside observations I see, it's happening in New York State almost exclusively because of their ability to probably help finance some of these, the PPA pricing, the leverage they have in Congress. New York's a huge state, right? They have a lot of political power. Is that where most of these factories end up or in Virginia, same reason? It, it's likely to be New York and New Jersey. Um, there will be a few factories in Massachusetts. Um, you could actually see South Carolina spool up quite a bit because there's, uh, there's no unions. Um, and that's still, I mean, why do you think GE's there with some of their manufacturing, even in gas turbines and, and such? Um, so, you know, Boeing's also in, in you know, obviously unrelated to offshore wind, but Boeing is, is there for the same reason. Um, you know, California has been, again, a little slow on the uptake with some of this, but you are, I mean, even the Port of Long Beach, now that they saw the outcome of the um, the auctions, you know, six, seven months ago, they got their act together pretty quick because there were a lot of voices coming out and saying, well, what are we going to do for ports? And and this one, you know, uh, port in Humboldt can't serve, you know, the, you know, all these projects throughout not only Northern and Southern California, but also Oregon. Um, so the, you know, Port of Long Beach has come out and said, okay, we'll expand, we'll expand. Um, you know, everybody will get their act together if they feel like they're going to miss out on an opportunity. But I don't think everybody quite feels that way at this point. Um, we've even calculated that there's, you know, talk about port infrastructure improvements. There's uh, something on the order of like 800 million in port infrastructure improvements that needs to be made uh, that hasn't been committed to yet, uh, at least not officially. So, you know, we're we're a ways off from where we need to be. And the one thing that unlocks all of that is bringing people more certainty. Um, right now, the the one knob that the government has to turn, as far as I can see, it, or the biggest knob that the government has to turn is uh, Federal Reserve policy. They can try to damp down inflation faster, which will you know trigger a lot of these other things that will ultimately lead to more investment commitment in the infrastructure and the the manufacturing capacity. You know, I think one of the things not to be missed here either is um, when it comes to moving things around in the maritime world, distance isn't as big of a deal as it is on shore. So the first substation that's being built for, I believe, Vineyard Wind was built in Texas and it just left not too long ago. Right, so the, the the capabilities of ports and manufacturing and and those kind of things being done along the Gulf Coast, um, I think sh in my mind should be leveraged a little bit more uh, to help the East Coast. Because if you want to if you want to use a port facility, there's a lot of them existing down here. There's a lot of manufacturing. There's a lot of assembly areas. They've been doing it down here for big time for a long time, and they got the expertise, the people. 
They know all the codings. They, they've they've been through the whole thing. They know how they've got facilities built for launching these platforms, towing these platforms, all the above. So it, that's one of the things I think that we could leverage a little bit more to uh, as a boost to the East Coast uh, is using the Gulf and dragging stuff out around Florida and up. Well, Joel, I think, and Phil, if you've watched some of this later discussion, uh, particularly in Massachusetts, where they're talking about raising the price of electricity to start paying for these offshore projects, right? So they're going to have to raise the PPAs to get projects off the ground. The governors are getting involved in Massachusetts and New York in particular, and into those discussions, they have to do that. They really have no choice. So when they when they flip that switch of higher PPAs, where they're going 25, 30% higher, so instead of being at 75, they're going to be at $100 a megawatt hour, which is where they're going to end up most likely. Then I think the local content is going to become a big deal, right? Uh, because there's going to be pressure from the local citizens saying, well, if I'm going to pay $100 a megawatt hour, I need my brother-in-law to be working, right? And so the Texas thing, Joel, is just going to go away. There's just no chance they're going to be able to sell that and still be reelected. Yeah, that's true. It's such a difficult market. You also see even the governor of Louisiana is now kind of on board with offshore wind, and not just because of the Gulf projects, but because of he sees the fabrication opportunities. There's still a lot. I mean, this goes back to Hurricane Katrina. There's still a lot of places in New Orleans, in and around New Orleans that were kind of abandoned after the hurricane and never had an opportunity to, to be revived. Um, so there's still plenty of space down there to be able to put port facilities in and and accommodate not just the the Gulf of Mexico projects, um, which will be huge if if those move forward, um, but you know continuing to to support anything on the East Coast as well. So there there's a lot of people keenly interested, but there there are decisions that need to be made, like you said, from Massachusetts, New York, et cetera, where the projects are actually being built in the first place. Yeah, if you look at where they're building ports at the minute, if you have Albany, New York, like they're talking about two or three different ports not very far from Albany, New York. You have some around Long Island. You have one in Connecticut or two in Connecticut. You have a couple in Massachusetts eventually, right? So you can see the writing on the wall here. They're not going to let it out of their domain if they can prevent it, right? Because they have to show something happening on shore. That's where the jobs are. If something's happening 50 miles away in the water, it's pretty hard for the local constituents to drive by that and see it, right? So you, they want to have that, the docks and the turbines sitting on the shoreline. They need that. The politicians need to be able to show that, and the states and the governors need to be able to show that. I don't see how they move away from it, which which adds to the constraint of how the heck is it all going to get done, right? So you don't have the FIDs kicked off. You don't have the financial instruments where the, the, the Orsteds of the world are going to be able to maybe do this themselves or, or think this is a high-priority project. Meanwhile, the states are kind of stuck eating higher PPAs, and at, at the same time, they're probably going to have to kickstart a bunch of factories in their own state to make it seem sellable. Is, is that where we're at today? Which begs the question, are they going to end up doing some kind of horse trade of you know, guarantee us a factory and we'll guarantee you a 15% boost in the PPA price. You know, I think it's going to come down to that kind of horse trading to to get, you know, job commitments and factory commitments in exchange for something. I think you're there. Here's a thought. Now, this is a little bit conspiracy theory-ish. However, I was thinking about this the other day after a conversation Alan, you and I had. Do you think that the 
temperature here or the uh, the ability to negotiate would be different if the companies coming in and doing these developments were U.S.-based companies versus non-U.S.-based companies. Because there is not one that is a U.S.-based entity. Every one of them's got a headquarters somewhere else. So I don't think they have the 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 U.S. you know the U.S. population's best interest in mind. If it was you know like a U.S. company like a Boeing or something, we I mean, we said that earlier. It has nothing to do with offshore wind. But like if it was that home company, like we're going to do this for the for the states, there might be a little bit of an easier negotiation. Yeah, the independent power producers at, at the moment are not. Uh, again, we've talked before about Invenergy is is majority owned by uh, a Canadian uh, Canadian company. Um, but all the other, you're right. I mean, all the other independent power producers and developers are, you know, have a, a foreign owned majority, right? So I think the short answer is yes. We, we tend to like the, the patriotic thing, um, at least most of the time, although I actually, you know, again, not to get off topic, but I worked for Sikorsky Aircraft Corporation back in 2003 when they were retendering the presidential helicopter contract. Um, an American company, Sikorsky, flew the president for as long as the president's ever flown in a helicopter, and they ended up allocating the project to Eurocopter. Um, so it, it was, uh, you know, that was right. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh you know, I we could we could say you know made in the USA all all we want, um, but the only way we can really say that is by getting the. I mean, you've got GE, which is obviously going to keep lobbying for it. They are technically, uh, even though they're you know uh, different organizations are you know part of GEs in in France as well. Um, but it's a it's a U.S. based parent. Um, I think the supply chain companies are going to potentially push, even though again, you know, Vestas is Danish, of course, and uh, Siemens Gamesa is is well Spanish German, uh, still sort of Spanish uh, <laughs> at this at this point. Um, so you know, you're you're at a point where they're going to have to make commitments for domestic production. Um, if they're going to get the politicians excited to do anything. And like Alan's been kind of driving at, if we're going to do some kind of a horse trade, there's going to have to be some kind of America wins um, to be able to get the local politicians excited enough to get the the PPAs renegotiated. And keep in mind that all these all this power needs to go somewhere. And they have a, the local politicians also have a say in the uh, electrical interconnection as well, which again has has been a problem for the likes of Orsted in New Jersey and other companies who are trying to negotiate cable landing points and and power offtake. Um, so yeah, this the, you're going to have to everybody's going to have to give something, um, and what the local politicians are going to want is what they always want, you know, tax revenue, jobs, and you know something domestic. Um, and the OEMs want, and the, the independent power producers, the financiers, insurance companies, everybody else that's involved wants certainty and profitability. Yeah. And with the elections being about 15 months away, just about, there's going to be two plays. Everything's going to happen just after the election, right? All the horse trading is going to happen before the election. And then when the government is established, then all the, you'll hear all the contracts and stuff laid out. Or 
It's going to happen in the next eight to nine months. Those are your two windows, I, I think. So it, I'm really watching Massachusetts to see how this plays out because it feels like it's going to be before 2024 elections. It has to be. To make any, to make any progress, it's got to be. Right. I think in, in states like Massachusetts and New York, the offshore wind development matters. In places like Florida, Texas, nobody cares, right? So it's not going to be part of a national scene, but I think locally it's going to play big. Phil, hey, it's great to have you back. We haven't talked to you in a while, and I, I always miss having you on the program and because you just provide some insight that Joel and I don't have because you get your fingers in the data. So if if you're not familiar with Phil Totaro and the work of Store, check them out on LinkedIn and on the web. Good information. And Phil, I appreciate you coming on the program. Thanks again, Alan. I appreciate you having me.